But then I started having the kind of blackouts where you lose time. And I was away for a weekend with some friends and we'd been drinking all day Saturday. Sunday morning at breakfast, I suggested that we walk to the next village and look at, you know, something that was interesting there. And they said to me, Janet, we did that yesterday and you were with us and you were walking and you were talking, you weren't stumbling, you weren't slurring your words, surely you remember. And I could not remember a thing. This is Not Quite Alcoholics, with me, Rory Kinsella, a meditation teacher, sober coach, and the creator of We Meditate to Quit Alcohol and the Six Steps for Not Quite Alcoholics. If you're considering changing your relationship with alcohol and are looking for tips, advice, and inspiration, you've come to the right place. Not Quite Alcoholics, how to go alcohol-free before rock bottom. Today on Not Quite Alcoholics, I'm joined by Janet Gorond, the founder of Tribe Sober, a community of people changing their relationship with alcohol. Janet is originally from London, but has been living in Cape Town in South Africa for the last 20 years. And when she decided to stop drinking alcohol, she couldn't find much support in South Africa and didn't want to go down the rehab AA route. So after getting sober, On her own and by going to a workshop, she decided to use her background in training and development to develop a program of her own. Janet, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rory. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, Yes, great for us to have two Brits in the Southern Hemisphere (laughs) chatting. But yeah, could you could you start off by yeah telling us a bit about your your journey with drinking and, and giving up drinking? Sure. Well, uh, my drinking career was was quite a lengthy one, actually, longer than yours, Rory. <laughs> you saw the light before I did. Uh, but yeah, I normally split my my story into three wake up calls. The first two should have been wake up calls, but I completely ignored them. And mm. the third one finally got with the program. So my first wake up call uh, in my twenties, uh, I lived in London. I shared a flat with three other women. We all had good jobs. I worked at the BBC. Um, We, you know, we had busy social lives, as you can imagine. There was always wine in the flats. And, uh, you know, none of us thought anything of it. We'd all have a couple of glasses of wine, at least in the evening, and obviously socializing as well. Uh, But I always, um, I often went over the top a little bit. And my first wake up call uh, came when I was just 25 years old. And that was when I woke up in hospital and I had no idea why I was in hospital, where where I was in hospital, what had happened. I'd had a complete blackout. So my flatmates had to fill me in on what had happened. And we just, well, we had had some people around and we'd just been chatting and drinking. And about midnight, I announced that I was going to bed. Uh, I can't remember any of this, obviously. And then I went into the bathroom to have a bath, which is what I always did in the evening. It's just a habit. Locked the door, got in the water and promptly passed out, you know. And and one of my flatmates happened to be coming to bed herself about 10 minutes later. And she just knocked on the door to say goodnight. Couldn't get any response. And then, um, you know, called some of the others. So they started panicking and they (laughs) dialed 999. So uh, the fire brigade, the medics showed up. How embarrassing. 
and they knocked the door down. There I was under the water. You know, if they hadn't have, they had to get me out, resuscitate me, take me off to hospital. So it was a real drama. Wow. Um, so you, you were fully under the water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think back that now, and I think, you know, how crazy. And I'm so blessed, you know, to still be alive. And I've had such a kind of crazy, interesting life that I would have hated to miss out on all that. Yeah. But yeah, I should have reflected. And in fact, the hospital um, sent a psychiatrist to see me in the morning and he said, you know, why did you try and kill yourself? And I said, I didn't know. I was just having a nice time. So that was the first indication that, you know, there was a little bit of a, a flaw there, a fatal flaw could have been. Almost so, fatal, um, yeah. yeah. So I, um, what happened was, and I think you'll understand this being a Brit, Myself and my pals, we just made that into a funny story. You know, it became a legend. Did yeah. you hear about Janet in her bath? You know, <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, we just laughed it off. And I wasn't worried about it, never really thought about it much at all until much later when I realized it was such a red flag. The fact yeah. that, you know, my, my flatmates, everyone else was fine. You know, there might have been a couple of hangovers, but, you know, nobody passed out. Nobody drank until they blacked out. So that was wake up call number one. Anyway, I carried on, um, you know, drinking, usually fairly sensible, occasionally a bit over the top, but, you know, nothing else crazy like that. And when I was 30, I got married for the first time to someone else that also liked to drink, you know, mm. <laughs> strange that, yeah. you know, we met at a party, both high and, you know, most of our marriage, <laughs> plenty of alcohol involved. Yeah. So, you know, again, we both had good jobs, very functioning alcoholics, if you want to use that word. And, you know, we're held down our job. I had uh, my son when I was 30 and I managed to stop drinking for nine months but it was a real struggle you know I really white knuckled it couldn't yeah. wait for to wet the baby's head so to speak so <laughs> yeah. you know we just uh, every night we'd both get home I remember we'd have a shot of Jack Daniels and then open a bottle of wine with dinner and that was completely normalized and then we would socialize at the weekends, dinner parties that went on till three o'clock in the morning. So yeah. remember all the bottles everywhere. And all of our friends were like that. So we never thought anything of it. We certainly didn't think there was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was my 40s. And then in my early 40s, um, I got divorced and remarried. And that's when things changed because my new husband was French, um, is French, he's still around. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, the French, I don't know if you know many continental people, but they have a rather different attitude to alcohol than the Brits. You know, they they, uh, they don't go for it like we do. They, they, you know, they'll have a glass of nice wine when they're eating. And obviously there is alcoholism in France, but, um, you know, the, the regular people don't, don't they seem don't to do drink the like they don't they don't they're hammered. not into binge drinking yeah we we love well i used to love my binges it was and you know one of the many rows that i had with french husband he'd be why can't you just have two glasses <laughs> you know why do you they just don't get it and i said because that's how i let my hair down you know i work hard and i play hard that that's me yeah so um yeah so i always say that during because i wanted to stay with this guy so i knew that i had to make an effort 
And it was only when I tried to cut down that I realized just how hooked I was because it was so difficult. And I looked up the low risk limits of alcohol, a bottle and a half of wine a week. I mean, I was putting that away every evening. So it was a a bit of a shock. But I was trying to drink within those limits and I could just about manage two weeks, three weeks. So then the wheels would come off. I'd drink till I blacked out. We'd have a huge row and then it would go back. But what I was doing wrong, you know, and what I really like to give people as a tip is what I was doing wrong is I refused to give up completely because I thought I cannot imagine, excuse me, I cannot imagine my life without alcohol. So I'm going to control this thing. But of course, once you've crossed a line with your drinking, there's no going back. You'll never be able to control it. So because I was so stubborn, you know, I had a whole decade of this kind of groundhog day and it was miserable. So in my 50s, I then had wake up call number two, which was breast cancer. And it was quite serious. You know, I had mastectomy, chemotherapy, a whole year of treatments. It was very difficult. Uh, But I didn't connect it with my heavy drinking at all but these days the evidence is there you know the link is very strong between breast cancer and they say drinking more than three drinks a week raises your risk by 15 percent so you know me with my bottle at a night at least you know I was really asking for trouble and I got it but I didn't do anything about it I think I changed my uh, my white wine to red wine because I'd read in a magazine <laughs> that red wine is good for you. And I remember so many, clinging so on many to that articles fact. Oh, about that. Crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I carried on. And then eventually, you know, a few years after that, I had my third wake up call, which was a blackout. And obviously, since the age of 55, I'd had blackouts. But usually, apart from the hospital drama, my blackouts were those kind of blurry things at the end of the night. You can't quite remember how you got home. And I I used to wake up always looking for my jacket and my handbag. You know, it's all a bit. But nothing. I mean, I just took those in my stride. They didn't worry me at all. But then I started having the kind of blackouts where you lose time. And I was away for a weekend with some friends and we'd been drinking all day Saturday. Sunday morning at breakfast, I suggested that we walk to the next village and look at, you know, something that was interesting there. And they said to me, Janet, we did that yesterday and you were with us and you were walking and you were talking. You weren't stumbling, you weren't slurring your words. Surely you remember. And I could not remember a thing. And that was my final wake up call. That just frightened me because I knew that I was probably damaging my body but the thought that was damaging my brain you know I thought it's something's got to change here and I woke up the next morning and I said to long-suffering husband who was still around miraculously I said that's it I'm done with alcohol and he he didn't say um oh I've heard that before because he'd never heard that before I'd always said I'm going to cut down I'm not going to drink so much so for me, that was the turning point. So um, that's that's how I eventually stopped. And of course, once I'd made up my mind that I was going to stop, then I had to work out how I was going to stop. And that's another story. <laughs> yeah. So so great to hear that, and thank you for sharing. And it's it's very interesting, you know, to hear how long how long that yeah. p- period can last. Um, <clears throat> and 
yeah, so the program I teach is called Six Steps for Not Quite Alcoholics. And the step one is accept that life would yeah. be better without yeah. alcohol or with less alcohol. And yeah. that that getting to acceptance can take a long time because there's denial, Absolutely. there's bargaining, there's yeah. all those five stages of grief. Um, and it's, yeah, interesting to hear how long it can take to to do that. And it's um, the hardest step of all, I think, to accept, yes, I've got a problem, mm. and then to reach out and get help because there's so much shame around drinking, especially for women. So my attitude was always, well, I've got myself into this mess, so I'll get myself out of it very quietly, very privately, and nobody needs to know about it. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't look like you're keeping quiet about it now. <laughs> um, all right, so, yeah, how, how did you make the change? How did you go about So that? I was living in Cape Town at the time. So uh, I trotted along to AA because I had no idea what else I could do. But it just didn't work for me because, uh, I mean, I tried a few different groups and maybe I was just unlucky. I know that AAs help millions, you know, so I'm not yeah. dissing them. But it didn't work for me because the meetings that I went to, the people there, they were even further down the road than I was. I mean, I was probably on my way but they were people that were drinking, you know, spirits in the morning. They'd lost their jobs, lost their families in some sense. So all it did for me was make me have these ridiculous thoughts was like, you know, well, I'm not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, you know, my bottle of wine and I isn't that bad. So it made me doubt my decision. So that wasn't good. Plus, I found it all rather depressing, you know, and I, d I don't like labels. You know, I still don't like to refer to myself as an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I just say that I'm a woman that drank too much. Now I don't. You know, why do we have to label ourselves? Yeah, I don't agree with that. So, um, yeah, I, that didn't work. So I carried on looking and then I found Club Soda in London. And at that time, uh, they were running workshops, like one day workshops. So I was due a trip home. So I thought, oh, well, I'll check this out. So I went and it, that worked for me. And, you know, the content was nothing special, obviously, tips, tools, you know, how to change your behaviors, etc., but what worked was finding other people like me. You know, I found my people yeah. and they were they were all women, actually. And they all had good jobs and nice families and they were drinking a bottle of wine a night and they wanted to change. They knew as they got older, you know, it was not sustainable health wise. So I bonded with them and I stayed uh, stayed sober, you know, and then I came back to South Africa and that's when I started thinking, you know, I had a bit of a low in early sobriety, to be perfectly honest. I felt a bit depressed and I started doubting my decision because I thought, oh, you know, if this is sobriety, I'm, I'm not sure it's for me. It's all a bit boring and grey and miserable. And then I had this idea, you know, to set up my own kind of workshops and my own thing and my own membership. And that kind of perked me up enormously, as you can imagine, because I had a project. So it got yeah. the the happy brain chemicals triggered and there was no looking back back from then. Amazing. So what, yeah, what do you think the, so the community was what, what, what did it for you? Or basically accepting, ex acceptance and then finding your tribe? Yes, the combination of those. And 
And I'm sure you've seen Johan Hari's uh, TED Talk, but connection is the opposite of addiction. And, you know, we all know that now. And where I was going wrong with my decade of moderation was um, obviously not accepting that I had to stop completely, but also trying to do it alone because it's, you know, it's a lonely place and you end up relying on willpower, which is not the right approach anyway. And you just, um, you know, feel like there's something wrong with you. I used to look at my husband with his one glass of wine over dinner and I think, you know, why haven't I got willpower? But now I understand it's mindset, it's not willpower. Yeah. So f- for you, it was a case of it, it had to be all or nothing. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's true for everyone or do you think some people can control it and some people can moderate? It depends how far down the line you are. You know, if you've only been drinking for a relatively short time and you've only had, you know, a few red flags, then it's worth a try. Many people uh, end up setting the rules, as we call them. You know, they say, and I did that too, um, only drinking at weekends. I'll only drink when I go out. But we we usually end up breaking our our own rules. Uh, But yeah, I think... A few people, but the thing is, people that can moderate, they moderate. You know, they're like my husband, the alcohol isn't even on his radar apart from me. Uh, so, you know, people that we used to call, well, we still do really, we call our workshops New Beginnings, How to Moderate or Quit uh, Drinking. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a trick, um, but I'm very honest when I get people there. I say to them, you know, <laughs> The chances are that you probably can't moderate because you wouldn't be here otherwise. You would just moderate because yeah, yeah. it's very difficult to control once yeah. you've uh, you've crossed the line. Yeah, because it's, it's an addictive drug. One hundred percent. But yeah, it's it's interesting how you how you sneak them in, in with that because it's very very appealing <laughs> to people. I know, I know. It feels a bit sneaky, but I know that my heart's in the right place. <laughs> yeah, and you know, moderation. I think I think it is part of that process. They try and moderate, and then that is a yeah, that is a wake up call for them because yeah. they go, "Hang on, yeah. I wasn't trying yeah. before. Now I am." Yes, <laughs> and I'm struggling. So I think you know, it's 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 a process for everyone. Absolutely, because in that. any decision making, you know, certainly any big decision like this, you go through a, a series. A, phase of contemplation. And there was a very interesting study recently by the Tempest, who are an American sobriety group. And they did uh, a survey, 250 people in recovery. And they asked them, how long was it between that moment when you knew you had a problem to when you reached out and got some help? And the average was 11 years. Wow. So I say to people, don't wait 11 years, do something today. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what, so what, what were your biggest challenges once you'd made that decision and you'd, you'd, you'd stopped? What, what were the biggest challenges you faced? Uh, well, I went through that kind of low depression uh, yeah. phase and, and then I had to um, work on my limiting beliefs and uh, like like many people that have been drinking for decades, I had plenty, you know, obviously can never have fun with alcohol. Yeah. I'm going to lose all my friends, blah, blah, blah. I had them all, every single one. <laughs> so I had to really do the work on those. And how I did the work, I always give my socializing uh, example. 
because I always used to say, you can't, I can't possibly socialize without alcohol. You know, I'm not really interested in events that don't have alcohol because, you know, I love the buzz and the vibe and that's yeah. that's what I'm looking for when I socialize. So what I had to do to overturn that limiting belief is I had to keep socializing without alcohol. And I found it excruciating. You know, I just saw it as a challenge. And every time I went out, you know, I used to try and go out two, maybe three times a week. I would journal it and it would be another tick in the box. I survived. This is how it went. This is what people said to me. This is, you know, I would just document it all. I saw it as an experiment. And this went on for a good three or four months. And then one evening, I can still remember coming home in a cab and thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to meet that person for coffee and I must read that book. And what an interesting evening. And it occurred to me that I hadn't been drinking. And that was like a turning point. And it wasn't, you know, brilliant after that every time. But that's when things started getting better. And my theory is that my subconscious had finally accepted that, Perhaps one can socialize without alcohol. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, you know, we've conditioned ourselves to have those beliefs. You know, I had the same yeah. ones. I can't play music without alcohol. I can't have fun. I used to so resent it if I had to be, for whatever reason, designated driver, I wouldn't have a good time. And that's the thing. If you yeah. believe you can't have fun without alcohol, you won't have fun without alcohol no. until you've had enough experiences of having fun without alcohol like you said you yeah. force yourself to do it and then you're like oh i can but that's yeah. you know that doesn't happen just by you can't will it or just say you know change no. in my head you have to have that that period of if it's a month or three months or however long of not drinking and going to those weddings going to those birthday yeah. parties going on skiing holidays or whatever things it is and, and going hey this is actually really good and i don't have to ski the next day with a horrendous hangover and hey yeah. could be better <laughs> i know you start realizing that there's actually more to gain than there is to lose i think that's another big turning point isn't it when the yeah. benefits come in yeah 100 percent. so that leads us on nicely to talking about the benefits i know you said that there was that 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 low depressed period after you did quit what what benefits have, have blossomed since then? Yeah, well, that, that was um, kind of the turning point, really. And now when I think back to those, it was about two or three months. I call it the void, you know, and other people have that as well. And, and I say to them, you know, the answer is probably to get a project, you know, get something interesting to do. So you don't sit there thinking, oh, I wish I was drinking all the time. But I also think that there is a... Um, a bit of magic in that void or liminal space, I heard someone call it the other day, because that's when your creativity clicks in and you start having ideas. And that's what happened to me gradually. I mean, I had to just kind of sit, sit it out for a bit. But gradually, I started having a lot of ideas, you know, and I'd been walking. Uh, I go for a walk every day for about an hour and I'd have to keep stopping and writing ideas in my phone in case I forgot them. You know, I could feel my brain kind of coming back to life and mm -hmm. I had a, a lot more energy. And with those things, you know, I was able to to go on and create Tribe Sober. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the benefits, there's 
there's the quick benefits that come in, you know, within the first couple of months, like, you know, better sleep, no hangovers, your skin improves, your eyes look better. You know, there's there's those things. And I was expecting those things. But what I wasn't expecting was the next level, which for me came in towards the end of my first year of sobriety. I think everyone's got to try a year without booze just to experience because dry January, you know, a month, it does nothing. All it does is inform your subconscious that sobriety is a nightmare. because <laughs> yeah, it's to, so... to be endured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But once you get through to the other side, you know, there's a whole new world. And there's a book that I'm sure you've read. Uh, it's called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray, English journalist. And I love the title of that book because that sums up my journey. It was so unexpected. You know, I knew that I had to do this because my brain was, you know, being damaged. But I wasn't expecting it to be a journey of joy and fulfillment. So that's been a wonderful surprise for me. Great. Yeah. And it's it's nice to think about because you, you can set it up as this annoying, you know, punishment thing that you have to do. Like I don't, yeah. I, I, I'm not able to drink. I can't drink. Whereas now I think about it more as I don't have to drink. I don't yeah. have to go through that yes. roller coaster yeah. of peaks and troughs and Sunday to Wednesday being just written off. I loved how you're talking about the creativity coming back. Mm. Like I, I would have that on a weekly cycle as, as a binge drinker who didn't drink usually Monday to Thursday, that would, that creativity would come back on Thursday, on Wednesday, Thursday. And I'd be like, Oh, brilliant. And I'd start these projects and then boom, gone again, <laughs> wiped out. The with, energy you know, 12 just hours goes, drinking yeah. on Friday and then another 12 on Saturday and it's, it goes. <clears throat> so, and what, what I love about sobriety as well is, um, I feel cause when I started drinking in my teens, you know, I thought I was a bit edgy, you know, drinking too much. Cause maybe in those days, you know, not everybody drank, but these days it seems like everybody drinks. So I say to people, you know, we're, we're the rebels, not the sheep, you know, yeah, let's I unplug understand. from the matrix. Cause we're so manipulated, obviously, by the liquor industry or their brainwashing and peer pressure. The fact that you get interrogated if you don't drink, you know, it, it takes confidence and it takes courage to, to go against the flow, but it's so worth it. Yeah, and I, I love that. I love sharing that idea with people who, because a lot of people have that rebellious spirit. A lot of mm. people who who are over drinkers have that rebellious spirit. Like we, you know, I used to drink at 14, 15, going into pubs. Like it was rebellious. It was as a 14-year-old. Mm. It's not as a 44-year-old. <laughs> it's the most no. mainstream kind of lame thing that you can do. Exactly. exactly. Much, much more rebellious. Um Okay, so you talked about um, walking and, and, you know, that as being a, a, a way of relaxing and, and getting creative ideas. What, what, what other things form your daily routines that help you stay sober? Well, obviously, the work that I do is uh, is very, uh, you know, I literally work at this thing seven days a week because it's, it's my passion and I get it's given me real purpose in my life, which I didn't have before. You know, I was a bit of a corporate drone for a long time. And then when I came here, I was more into consulting, which suited me a little bit better choosing projects. 
<laughs> excuse me, but but I just love, you know, helping other people and, and it's just so rewarding. So that certainly um, keeps keeps me going. And I do a lot of yoga and uh, I spend a lot of time at my computer. So I've got a little trampoline. So every hour I set my phone and I go and bounce on the trampoline and oh, do a bit we of strength could have done training. This, we could have done this on the trampoline. Would have been. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's so, so important and so great to hear you talking about how how creating the community and inspiring other people is such a key part of your yeah your journey and and in my six steps that's step six is is share your story with others and inspire others exactly yeah i see it as our responsibility and and people what's lovely about our community is we've got people that have been with us you know for five five years now and rather than just drift off into the sunset, which I was expecting people to do when they got sober, they hang around, you know, because we've got all these chat groups, obviously, and we've got a sober buddy system, a bit like AA sponsor. So we team up the the sober ones with the newbies. So, it, you know, because it can't just be me, obviously. We've yeah. got a whole kind of crowd of people inspiring other people. Wonderful. All right. Well, Janet, thank you for joining us. Um, if people want to find out more about Tribe Sober, how can they do that? Uh, tribesober.com and our podcast is called Tribe Sober. Great. Well, thanks again for, for joining us. Pleasure. If you're looking to change your relationship with alcohol, check out my guided meditation series, We Meditate to Quit Alcohol, and my Six Steps for Not Quite Alcoholics program, which offers motivation, meditation, and accountability to help you achieve your drinking goals. If you found this useful or interesting, please give us a rating and a review before you leave so that other people like you can find us and share with any friends who may also find it useful.